so the questions that I'm thinking about, uh, I mean, I'm very curious uh, about how uh, humans are different from other animals, but I'm also really interested in how that happened, how we became so different in terms of our psychology. Uh, and I think the area in psychology that really is fertile for a lot of growth is thinking about how our psychology evolved. So how did we go from having psychology like more like other apes to being like we are now? And what was the process by which that happened? How did either natural selection or random forces of evolution produce what we are today? And that's a really hard problem and one that I, I can get really excited about. That's what I spent a lot of time thinking about. How can we approach that, attack that problem? So what are we doing to try to, uh, to look at that? Well, uh, we compare uh, different animals, and I think historically uh, we've been really lucky if we could do uh, a comparison of two animals. So say uh, I compare dogs and wolves to each other and try to understand how they're different from one another. And if I can understand how they're different, uh, then maybe I can make some guesses about how those differences evolved. Uh, but I think for the future, my hope is that just like in um, paleoanthropology or in comparative genomics, where people compare complete genomes of lots of different organisms, uh, that comparative psychology can move past just sort of comparing pairs of species. And we can really look at lots of different species and use the, the tree of life uh, to make predictions and, and test ideas about how uh, psychology might evolve in lots of different species so that then we can come up with ideas about how our own species may have happened. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, for instance, if, if you're interested in uh, human social uh, psychology, so for instance, the idea that we have culture, or that we have language, uh, that we can think about the thoughts of others, um, and we have uh, the ability to uh, deceive or care about others and have empathy, etc. One of the big hypotheses for how humans ended up with these uh, unusual abilities is that there was selection on uh, or evolution uh, that favored more complex social skills. So to test that though, uh, you have to look at lots of different species and you have to have data on how lots of different species solve social problems and how those social skills may have evolved. Uh, and that's been really difficult, actually. Uh, and so that's been one of the things that I've been really excited about, sort of getting around that problem. And, and one of the things we've done is we've tried to pioneer, um, like the genomicists do, uh, these large-scale collaborations. So we published uh, a paper two, three years ago uh, that involved 56 co-authors. And we got uh, people from all over the world to contribute data uh, on a variety of primate species and even non-primates. We had birds and we even had elephants in the mix. So we had almost 40 species and everybody had done some cognitive tests with their species they had available to them. And remarkably, it was the first time that people who study animal psychology had ever worked together in this way. So we led the charge to do that because we know that if we want to understand back to human social psychology or uh, the evolution of human so social psychology, if we want to test uh, why we are the way we are and the hypotheses that we think 
are necessary to make us human, we're going to have to look at a large range of species and understand how they have been shaped by evolution. Uh, so what we found was we, we actually measured inhibitory control. So that's basically your ability to uh, not do something that might be counterproductive. Uh, it seems like there's a solution there, but the solution that seems apparent is the wrong one. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we had two measures of this on these 40 species. And we thought that by testing the big hypothesis is that really there's been selection on social psychology uh, in, in, in animals that then we might be able to learn about the human case. Uh, when we looked at these 40 species, that's not what we saw. Uh, it looked like when you look at the social systems of different animals, what we thought it would be is that animals that have more complex social systems, well, they really need that ability to control their behavior, to not do something that might be counterproductive. Because you imagine you're competing with one another, you don't want to get in the fight with the wrong guy, right? Um, so self-control would seem to be incredibly important in social endeavors. That's not the pattern we saw when we actually went and did the measurements and we had enough species where we could look at the overall pattern. The thing that stuck out, the thing that came screaming out was that self-control is simply a product of absolute brain size and it had more to do with your feeding ecology. So how complex was your diet? How many things do you rely on to survive? That was a big surprise. Because the, the idea that diet is shaping uh, you know, cognition has sort of uh, faded in, in many circles as the leading hypothesis for thinking about how psychology evolves. So, so that's the problem I think about is uh, you know, how do we move forward on testing ideas about the evolution of psychology? It's, it's a, a great question to think about, okay, well, how did we pull together these people? How did we choose who they were? And, uh, how did this all come about? Uh, well, it actually all started in a bar. Uh, there was a, uh, somebody who does what's called phylogenetics. Uh, he uses the tree of life to make predictions about evolution. And uh, he invited me to go get a beer. And he had realized, his name's Charlie Nunn, and um, uh, he's a professor with me at Duke. And he would realized that uh, no one was using the new phylogenetic techniques uh, within cognitive, the cognitive sciences, uh, looking at animals and animal psychology. And he just took me out. He says, why aren't you using phylogenetics? And I told him this really sad story about how, you know, well, it's really hard to get enough animals together to do this. And, and uh, he just didn't want to hear any excuses. And so he said, well, why don't we get uh, together uh, why don't we do a series of workshops at the National Evolutionary Synthesis Center at Duke? So, uh, so at that at those workshops, we got to hear about what phylogenetics is, and and uh, you know, phylogenetics is really the using uh, all the new genomic work to look at how different animals are related to each other. So, of course, evolution is descent with modification, and you can see. Uh, how many genes different animals share with each other and how they've changed or been modified by evolution. And that helps us understand how closely related different species are to each other. And so that's how we make the tree of life. Uh, and then you can use that tree of life uh, to understand uh, how fast change or evolution has occurred. Uh, you can also choose which species should be studied 
to test a different idea about evolution. Uh, and we, as a science, studying animals, really haven't taken advantage of that historically, uh, while much of biology has been doing this for 20 years. So Charlie really saw a real opportunity there and encouraged me to get my community together. And so we did these three workshops. Uh, and, you know, the, the, the group of people we brought together were uh, you know, it was a, a wide variety of uh, people who study animals in the wild, uh, people who study animals in captivity, uh, uh, people who are uh, biologists by training and use these phylogenetic techniques. We had uh, Mike Tomasello, we had Carl Van Schaik, uh, we had uh, uh, Joseph Call, we had uh, 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 Daniel Hound, and um, I was there, obviously. Uh, uh, Laurie Santos was there. So we had a lot of different uh, people, really a lot of the, the great talent in our uh, area of research. And so we brought all these guys together and the first workshop was literally like therapy uh, because we all were saying this is impossible. And um, the the funny the funny part is I already sort of revealed what the big finding was is absolute brain size really really matters, and what we all agreed at the workshop was we never wanted to hear anyone talk about how absolute brain size could predict cognitive ability, because we really were under the uh, you know we really felt strongly that uh, there's domain specificity that uh, evolution shapes different species to have uh, different cognitive or sorry, different ability to be flexible uh, and show flexible problem solving, but that brain size wasn't going to predict that, that flexibility wasn't always going to be related to brain size. So uh, we really said, okay, we're not, you know, we, we want to move past that. That's why we need this phylogenetic technique. So we had each successive meeting, though, uh, we got more and more optimistic. And one of the big things that really got people from being depressed and saying this isn't going to be possible was we went and did a study with the lemurs at the Duke Lemur Center. And we compared six of the species there on the same set of problem-solving tasks. And we were able to show our colleagues that species that were really different from each other, we could do a meaningful comparison that they were convinced uh, told us about similarities and differences that they could believe. Mm -hmm. And so, in demonstrating that, then we said, well, why can't we expand this to more species? Because the problem that comparative psychology has always had since the very beginning is what's known as the Beach-Bitterman problem. And the Beach-Bitterman problem is that how are we supposed to com compare species that have fins, that have hands, that have trunks, uh, you know, and have a fair comparison? And that's just talking about the morphology. Um, so we worked really hard on that on that problem and and i think we made some progress and phylogenetics really in a way helps us get out of that problem because it allows us to compare species that are closely related that have similar morphology uh and we compare them as almost they are the individual uh and so we can get multiple individuals so multiple clusters of species across the tree of life and look at how they are different from each other and if we get six or seven uh, six or seven sets of these species that differ in the same way, then now we've got a pattern. So if you want to have a species, for instance, get better at remembering things, 
Well, it ends up that in all seven of these different families, they all, for instance, have a larger brain or they all have a more complex social system. Mm -hmm. So we'd never been able to approach this problem before. And so by showing the lemurs could be compared in this way, uh, it really helped us get away from the beach veteran trap for the first time. And then by using phylogenetic tools, we could compare distantly related species uh, or sorry, we, more precisely, we could compare closely related species, but make conclusions about patterns uh, that we see in multiple sets of distantly related species and essentially look for convergence, what's known as the, the same process happening multiple times uh, across the tree of life. So uh, people got really excited. And so the, the, really the, the, the group that we put together, it was the people who by the third workshop were gung-ho uh, and then it was us going to all our friends who we knew had interesting animals and interesting populations of animals that could participate um, so was it a random sampling no was it a perfect sampling no uh, it was our attempt at a proof of concept and we chose inhibitory control on purpose because we knew that it and that's the self-control the idea of resisting a bad decision that it seems like that's the way to go, but, but it's not. We chose that because we knew that that was something that people could do quickly. It wouldn't require training. Uh, it was something we knew all animals would need to be a problem. All animals would need to be able to solve. Uh, and uh, we, we were right. I mean, people could do, we had everything from uh, swamp sparrows uh, to elephants participate in this. Uh, and uh, we found this really interesting pattern that brain size and, and how many uh, uh, types of food you eat are what matter. But it was really a proof of concept. We published it in the Prestigious National Academy. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's been very well received. Uh, but the question is, what's next? Mm -hmm. So we showed this proof of concept. Uh, how do we move this field forward? We know we can do this now. We know as a community we can get people to work together. We can identify a problem. We can solve the beach bitterman trap, and we can test the big evolutionary hypotheses for, co for, for psychological evolution. And we can even put them into competition against each other. We can say, okay, was it really social uh, evolution? Was it, you know, foraging? Is it brain size? Is it relative brain size? We can put those things into competition. The, the opportunity here is that a lot of people have ideas about how psychology evolves, uh, whether, let's say it's my PhD advisor talking about the importance of cooking, which really emanates from thinking about energy uh, and increases in energy and how that affects brain evolution, um, or somebody arguing about the importance of uh, self-control uh, in evolution. Uh, you know, there's a lot of hypotheses about how psychology evolves. Um, so, for instance, my own PhD advisor, Richard Rangham, uh, his ideas uh, about how the importance of cooking in human evolution and how that's fundamental to the evolution of human cognition. And really, it's thinking about energy and how uh, the energy that it would take to have a human brain evolve. Uh, the only way to get there in his mind is through cooking. Uh, if you have uh, somebody like uh, Robert Sapolsky thinking about the importance of self-control and how uh, self-control would be crucial uh, to um, uh, cognitive evolution uh, in primates and beyond. My own idea is that, uh, and actually it's together with Richard Rangham again, is thinking about uh, 
how selection for friendliness, how if you become uh, more interested in a larger range of social partners, that has a huge impact on uh, the evolution of psychology. These are all fascinating hypotheses, but a hypothesis is only good as good as it is testable. And I think what we're seeing with this approach of using phylogeny uh, is this is really the way we're going to test these big ideas uh, and potentially falsify them. So, uh, for instance, in my case, thinking about selection for friendliness, uh, I need to find uh, a range of uh, times in evolution where I think that selection pressure may have had a big impact. So for instance, I'm really interested in species that live on islands. Uh, so species where they have um, uh, populations on islands, but there's also a population on a continent. And the thinking is that when you've escaped predation, uh, that there's actually selection against a uh, defensive fear response because what's the point? There's no predators. They can eat you. Uh, and I would suspect that the cognitive evolution that we see between dog and wolf, something similar has happened in these island populations. So that's where phylogenetics and looking at the tree of life and testing these hypotheses is super powerful. It means that it means moving beyond just sort of comparing two species and saying, oh, look, here's this one species or population that lives on an island and one that doesn't live on an island. They're different in the way that I thought they'd be different. Look, that hypothesis is supported. That's not really convincing to an evolutionary biologist. It might be convincing to me uh, just because we have never been able to really do phylo phylogeny. But for an evolutionary biologist, like let's say studying bacterial evolution, they'd never be impressed by that. So we can move towards really doing uh, evolutionary science by looking at, say, species that live on islands in a variety of different island environments. We can look at species that are living. Another interest of mine is looking at species who are invading uh, urban environments. Uh, let's say coyotes, uh, that there were no coyotes uh, west of the Mississippi 50 years ago, and now they're in every state uh, east of the Mississippi. Uh, I would predict that coyotes have been selected for friendliness and that the, their psychology has been shaped in ways that I would predict based on our hypothesis. So we can, through looking at phylogeny, choose a whole host, dozens of species that I would predict had changed based on my hypothesis. We can get collaborators to go out and work with those animals and come up with a task that would challenge their problem-solving ability. And let's see if that hypothesis was actually as predictive as we thought it was, and we can potentially falsify it, and that's the progress we've actually never been able to make. So that's the, the power of this phylogenetic approach. If, if you're, you know, people wondering what cognitive evolution might be, I mean, you know, the evolution of morphology, the evolution of, um, you know, diet, it's, it's just studying how the mental processes, the way that our minds work, uh, how the, it evolved. The, the way to think about cognitive evolution is that we, you know, it's the hidden, it's the hidden life inside your mind. And the underlying assumption of cognitive evolution is that animals also have a hidden life inside their minds. Uh, and it's a rejection of the idea that someone like B.F. Skinner, uh, or J.B. Watson, uh, as, uh, the, traditional field of 
or a school of psychology known as behaviorism would have advocated uh, the idea that it, it re the idea of cognitive evolution rejects the notion of a, a unidimensional measure of intelligence that there's one form of intelligence and difference differences between species are just quantitative uh, and really measured at how fast they can learn things. Uh, instead, the idea of cognitive evolution is that there's different types of intelligence. And I think the crucial piece is that they vary independently. So for instance, you can have a species that uh, has a lot of self-control, but no working memory uh, relative to another species that might have a lot of working memory and no self-control. You could have a species that uh, is very good at understanding what others intend uh, but, you know, isn't very good at uh, understanding the causal prin principles of the world. So, for instance, uh, you know, things like gravity or understanding how that when things are connected to each other, that, that they move together. Uh, so all these types of cognitive abilities, uh, we can measure them and we can look at which species have uh, the most flexibility across all these different domains or uh, different types of intelligence. So that's the exciting uh, program of cognitive evolution. It's, it's, it is radical in that uh, we're saying we're going to be able to see inside the minds of uh, other animals and uh, make inferences about what's going on. And that really was rejected by behaviorism uh, as, a, as almost a pseudoscience. Uh, you know, if B.F. Skinner would have said, uh, you know, we can understand everything about behavior uh, without attributing anything to the animal's mind. And he didn't, it, one thing that people sometimes uh, misinterpret, he didn't argue that animals didn't have minds, he just didn't think they were important. But I think that is, uh, today we know based on neuroscience and how uh, development works uh, and also our own studies of animal uh, psychology, that just doesn't fit the facts. Thinking about cognitive evolution, so then thinking about this group of people we brought together uh, to study you know, the hidden mind of animals uh, and we started by looking at uh, self-control. So we work, literally it took us seven years to organize and uh, put together this group of people and get everybody to um, agree to participate and get enough species together where we could do our phylogenetic test using the tree of life to test these evolutionary hypotheses. And then we had to coordinate. We had to, uh, when we had, I, we, we had done our six species of lemurs, but we had to coordinate because there were people who were in South America working with uh, gold lion tamarins. Uh, there were people um, in Indonesia working with elephants. They were, sorry, not Indonesia, but in Thailand working with elephants. There were people uh, in Germany who were working with uh, chimpanzees and bonobos. And then we had people um, in California who were working with squirrels. This is ridiculous in a way. <laughs> but uh, so, and we had to have everybody sort of give a reasonable approximation of our cognitive task or our talk our problem so that the comparison would be meaningful. So that meant we had to get all these people to send us their videos. We had to watch the methods and make sure that, okay, that seems right. And we had to everybody sort of agree that this seemed like a reasonable way forward. So it was a lot of work, it took us seven years. And we finally like, okay, let's run the analysis. And I was putting my money on uh, uh, 
being social and being a richer social group would probably explain the difference between species' ability to solve this problem. I think a lot of people were betting on that. And it was going to be the first time, I mean, this hypothesis has been kicking around since the late 70s, and it was really, this was the biggest test yet. Um, and it ends up that there was absolutely no evidence to support it whatsoever. And that the main pattern that came out, and I mean screaming out of this data, uh, was that it really is absolute brain size. Relative brain size, not so much, which was interesting because people, there's been a debate about which of those measures is more powerful. Uh, and I can tell you it's absolute brain size if you're talking about self-control. There's, there's some evidence from this uh, for the diversity of food that you eat. Uh, that was an important pattern as well. But it was, it was sort of a, a wonderful moment in science, though, where you get to find out what kind of scientist you are. Because I remember my postdoc came in and he told me, okay, here's what we found. I did the analysis and I was like, go back and find anything else. <laughs> I, don't, I don't care what you find in the data. Don't come back. And he says, I'm, look at the pattern. I mean, there's, this isn't going to go away. Uh, and I said, oh, man. So, so in, in, some, in some ways, it made me super proud that, that this is what we found because... It was not what we were looking for, so we we must have you know uh, been honest to the science. Yeah, absolute brain size would be um, that would be MRI. Uh, you could you could do it that way. I mean, there are ways to approximate it uh, without having to be scanned. I mean, you could go old-fashioned calipers, uh, like a paleoanthropologist would measure a fossil. You could do it on you know your head. To approximate, we did that in class as kids, uh, you know, in, in intro anthropology class. Um, but while we're on the topic of talking about measuring absolute brain size and what it has to do, because I, I I think what you're after is uh, I was talking about between species, but what about within species? You want to talk about a, a ooh a tough topic? Uh, I'll tell you that uh, we have a study that's uh, we're working up right now, and and I feel confident to talk about it. We have. Uh, uh, data on dogs and uh, dogs are have become a very powerful tool if you want to study psychology uh, and the, one of the reasons they're powerful is uh, we can study thousands of them and they have uh, incredible diversity and and in their um, behavior and in their uh, morphology and that includes their brain size so there is significant variation across different breeds in brain size and um, we were able to look at 10 different uh, types of uh, problem solving. We think uh, probably a, that account for about five different types of intelligence that we think dogs have and we have demonstrated that these types of intelligence vary independently within dogs um, and when we looked at absolute brain size across different dog breeds in a sample of 7,000 dogs, mm -hmm. uh, we have evidence that uh, brain size actually really, really matters on uh, for two of the five types of intelligence. For three, it doesn't matter at all. But for two, it matters a lot. And one is uh, working memory. So larger dogs are better at remembering for longer things they've seen in the past. Mm -hmm. Small dogs uh, struggle more, but on the flip side, what's really fun and interesting is that we have a game where uh, dogs uh, have the opportunity to either be uh, obedient or disobedient after you've told them not to take food. 
Uh, and the manipulation is that in one condition you watch after you've told them not to take the food, the other condition you actually turn your back on them. And small dogs are much more likely to be disobedient uh, strategically when you turn your back. Uh, and so that's related to brain size. So uh, it's kind of a fun one because within this one species where actually you have controlled for so much uh, because while there's different brain size, there's not different uh, across species. When you get different brain size, you also get different um, uh, proportions of different uh, parts of the neuroanatomy or parts of the brain are bigger or smaller across the brain. But in dogs, it really just scales one-to-one -one the entire brain. Uh, yet, we have one type of intelligence larger brain dogs do better with, this working memory. But when it comes to being deceptive, <laughs> based on what you can see, it's small dogs that are more intelligent and flexible. So, uh, you know, it may be good in some cases to have a larger brain, but it may be problematic as we continue to look at different types of intelligence. But I will say the working memory uh, finding does support our cross-species comparison because working memory and self-control have been argued to be what's known as executive function. These things are related to um, almost every problem we solve. Mm -hmm. uh, and people have uh, see them as sort of a a package together that has been called general intelligence, general intelligence in that it's just involved in almost everything we do. Um, that's to differentiate from something that is more specialized, like a social problem solving skill like the one I was talking about where dogs are being deceptive based on what you can see or not. That's a more specialized skill uh, that people like to call domain specific. Yeah. So, so I would say, you know, the underlying you know, research program of everything I'm doing is, uh, it's all about humans. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in uh, how humans happened, what is it that makes us human, uh, and how we got that way. And I don't think that you can know what it is to be human if you don't first know what it is to be not human. How in the world can you know that whatever it is you think it is that's special about humans is even specific to our species if you don't know what other species are like. It's very likely whatever you think is special about humans, probably other animals do it, unless you go ask them. So that's what we do. We, we go out and we, if there's somebody has a, a great idea about what might make us human, especially in my area, I'm interested in psychology, uh, and we use animals to try to potentially falsify or challenge that uh, idea. So how do we connect with people who are just specifically interested in the animals when, when our research program is all about studying human evolution? That's a good question. I mean, actually, um, I connect through my own brain um, because we, we uh, while we, everything we do is aimed at understanding humans, along the way of making discoveries, we learn a lot about the animals themselves. And we are very quick to find ways to try to apply that. I mean, I work with uh, the Department of Defense and we're very heavily involved in trying to understand uh, how you get the uh, best dog for the different jobs that they do. I mean, dogs have more jobs than ever. And so whether it's finding bombs or assisting people with disabilities, uh, we work towards trying to solve those kinds of problems, whether it's 
how do we have better welfare for animals? How do we take better care of them uh, when, when they're under our care? Or how do we get people to think about conservation? And what would motivate people to care more about animals? Uh, we work uh, very hard on those things, on all those issues. So, so the question is, how do we interface with those people? We are those people. Uh, and and uh, so the, I don't see those things as, as uh, in, in separate things. I got so I got, all the, I got into all this and uh, <laughs> uh, why I got excited about thinking about how animal minds work uh, is really started having a pet dog as a kid. Uh, my dog's name was Oreo and, and I, you know, there were many times where in interacting with him, I was just really curious. Like, did he love me like I loved him or was different? Uh, what was that like? Uh, and, and like many people, I got fascinated by the problem. I didn't go to college knowing that this is what I was going to become, but I, I uh, had uh, Franz Duval as a, a professor who introduced me to the field of animal psychology. And I worked very closely uh, starting uh, as an undergraduate with Mike Tomasello. By the time I Finished an undergraduate, I'd already published seven papers working on chimpanzee cognition, uh, and I was heavily influenced by uh, the idea that uh, I, I I was convinced that animals had minds potentially. But at the time I started, uh, people like Daniel Povinelli uh, had done his pioneer he'd done his pioneering work to argue that actually no uh, chimpanzees don't have. Uh, any uh, mental uh, or no ability to understand the mental lives of others. Uh, so, so working with Mike Tomasello, we we did a whole bunch of pioneering experiments, and as an accident, it became really apparent that dogs were doing something that even chimpanzees weren't doing. And uh, when I went to graduate school uh, with Richard Rangham, uh, he became very interested, together with me, in the effect of domestication. Uh, and in, in the process of thinking about domestication with uh, Richard, we both were exposed to the work of Dmitry Balayev. Uh, he was a Russian geneticist who had experimentally domesticated foxes over a 60-year period uh, and were heavily influenced by his thinking on uh, domestication. And then, uh, you know, being at Harvard and being around people like Steve Pinker and running into Dan Dennett and um, obviously uh, uh, thinking about, you know, uh, how, how could we explain uh, all the unique phenomenon that humans seem to uh, create uh, and how do we answer Darwin's ultimate challenge I mean, you know, the ultimate person who influenced me is Charles Darwin. And how do we get from a common ancestor with apes to the species that we are? And I think what happened to me was in interacting with all these different great minds, I realized there were so few people working on the hard problem. And probably one of Char Darwin's greatest challenges was not just identifying the thing that's unique, and there's lots of people who have done that in cognitive psychology, trying to figure out, okay, oh, what is it about language? What is it about culture that's different in us than other animals? But what's the process? Once we identify what it is, well, how did it happen? How are we going to have a testable hypothesis? There's a seven million year 
you know, process that led from our common ancestor with our living great ape cousins that we can actually measure and study and us. How are we going to get uh, fill the void? We, you know, we, we can't look at fossils and make inferences or very many rich inferences about their psychology. It's only going to take us so far. So that's why using uh, phylogenetics, the, the tree of life, and trying to look for evidence of distantly related species that have been changed in similar ways is going to be our most powerful tool looking for convergence uh, and why getting people to collaborate in ways they have not collaborated before will be the answer uh, to the biggest question I think Darwin ever asked, which is, there is a gap between us and other animals. How did natural selection or other random processes get us from animal psychology to human psychology? I think the big thing uh, that dogs helped us learn is that they're is that you can have evolution in how animals solve problems uh, as a, that, that happen as an accident, basically. Uh, we think dogs evolved uh, through selection for friendliness. Basically, wolves that were able to take advantage of interacting with humans as humans became more sedentary in uh, their lifestyle and the evidence for the beginning of dog evolution from genomic comparisons is that dogs probably began evolving 25 to 40,000 years ago. That means that it's hunter-gatherers that uh, basically in their interactions with wolves led to the evolution of dogs. Uh, before 10 years ago, people thought it would have been uh, agriculturalists, so that's a big change in um, the thinking. And that's why we think that actually it was wolves that chose us and began interacting with us a different way. We think the wolves that could interact with humans and, and come in close and be friendly and non-aggressive would have been at a huge advantage because basically your choice is go try to catch an elk and get kicked in the face uh, or maybe not get a meal or you can sneak into a human settlement at night, eat garbage, eat human feces uh, and you have a very stable food resource. Uh, we think that there was selection that those wolves that could take advantage of human settlements and, and garbage uh, bred together. And that led to changes in their morphology, changes uh, in their physiology, and changes in their psychology. They became friendlier, they could interact with us as if we were their own social partners and they could read our communicative intentions. That's why they're so good at reading our gestures. That's the hypothesis. So, but what about other species? Because what I just argued is that natural selection can select for friendliness and lead to domestication. Or the syndrome that we know is domestication. Uh, not that domestication doesn't require artificial selection. It doesn't require human guidance to generate a domesticated animal, at least the first steps. That's kind of a radical idea. And so the reason we got so interested in bonobos was because we realized, Richard Rangham and I realized that bonobos would provide an amazingly strong test case for, idea, for our idea that selection for friendliness can happen as a result of natural selection and that the domestication syndrome, this change in uh, morphology, physiology, and psychology that we think comes as a package through changing uh, how development occurs in a species uh, 
that bonobos would be a great way to potentially falsify this idea. And the reason we picked bonobos was because there was evidence that bonobos were less aggressive, were more friendly than their almost genetically indistinguishable closest relative chimpanzees that we're very familiar with. So we set about, Richard and I did about 10 years worth of comparisons comparing chimp and bonobo morphology, physiology, and cognition uh, and development. And what we found really to encapsulate it very quickly is bonobos are the dog of the ape family, of our ape family. Uh, they have changes in their morphology that are very similar to the changes you see between dogs and wolves. Uh, they, uh, so for instance, uh, they have smaller canines. Uh, their skulls uh, in their cranium are uh, more infant-like. Uh, even as adults, they're basically morphologically juvenile uh, in their uh, morphology. When it comes to their physiology, they deal with stress uh, in a very different way than chimpanzees, uh, in ways that you would predict if there was selection for friendliness. And that's, we can see that in their corticosteroid response or your, your, uh, hormones that are involved in how you deal with stress and fear. Also in their testosterone. Uh, so for instance, a male chimpanzee that's challenged has an increase in their testosterone, but bonobos don't. They actually have an increase in their cortisol. Uh, they get really upset if there's uh, a social problem and they want to hug and uh, or have sex. Uh, and that's a very different response to stress and social anxiety. Uh, and it's much more similar to what you see in dom how domesticated, domesticated animals deal with social stress. And then in terms of their psychology, well, in many ways what we found is that bonobos are the ape that never grows up. They have very juvenile psychology, even as adults. So many of the patterns of uh, development where chimpanzees uh, sort of begin, uh, let's say with uh, spatial cognition, how they deal with space and remember where things are. Um, bonobos and chimpanzees are very similar when they're juveniles, but chimpanzees move way past where bonobos ever arrive uh, in, their, in their development. Um, and that's exactly what we see wolf versus dog. But it's more interesting than that because it's not just that bonobos are frozen as juveniles. They also have extended, extended uh, uh, windows of development on both ends. It's not just that uh, they sort of stay juvenile for longer, but they also uh, show some things earlier. And the sociosexual behavior or the sexual behavior that bonobos are so famous for. Uh, the big surprise for me as I started to work with him is you see their sociosexual behavior as early as six months, eight months of age. These are tiny infant bonobos mm -hmm. are rubbing their genitals on their mothers, on peers, and we have a comparison. Uh, Vanessa and I actually did a comparison um, of bonobo and chimp infants uh, that had no uh, parents around them. And they essentially were playing doctor with each other, uh, uh, the bonobos were, and chimps, we see none of that behavior. So this is important because what we see in bonobos 
is the same thing we see in domesticated animals, whether they've been experimentally domesticated or the domesticated animals like dogs that weren't obviously experimentally domesticated, expanded windows of development. You can see patterns of growth that occur earlier and later. All right, so that's why then it becomes extremely tempting to think about our own species uh, and our own species uh, evolution because the big pattern when you compare uh, ourselves to other great apes and, and development of other great apes are expanded windows of development, especially when you think about our brain. If you want to get expanded windows of uh, development uh, in humans, how do you do it? And there really hasn't been a hypothesis that addresses that problem. How do you deal with changes in human morphology, especially late in human evolution? Uh, we have actually slightly smaller uh, brains uh, than our recent ancestors of 20 to 40,000 years ago. Uh, how do you deal with the feminization or juvenilization of our morphology? The fact that we have, uh, you know, much uh, less robust of facial morphology than the humans of 50 to 80,000 years ago. There's no hypothesis that deals with that. How do you deal with the fact that our self-control, our the, the pruning that occurs in our uh, prefrontal cortex, it doesn't end until we're 22. How do we deal with the fact that we're born with a brain that's uh, underdeveloped, but yet we know comparing ourselves to other great apes our social skills are way advanced. And I think the answer is uh, that there's selection for friendliness late in human evolution. And just like dogs, bonobos, that uh, the selection for friendliness led to expanded windows of development uh, and led to changes in morphology, physiology, and psychology, I think it's the answer for our species too.